The information in this skill is provided for informational and educational purposes only. Welcome, and thank you for listening to the Multiple Sclerosis Flash Briefings. When your relapsing multiple sclerosis begins to change, how you treat it should change too. Think beyond relapses and choose a treatment that can help delay disability progression. Find out more at changesinrms.com. My name is Jennifer Powell, and I am a columnist with Multiple Sclerosis News Today. Today, I'll be reading about how an MS study finds that genetics may explain an increased antibody against the Epstein-Barr virus. Genetic variants may contribute to an increased level of antibodies against proteins of the Epstein-Barr virus, a known environmental risk factor for multiple sclerosis in MS patients and their siblings, a study suggests. The study, EBNA1 titer gradient in families with multiple sclerosis indicates a genetic contribution, was published in the journal Neurology, Neuroimmunology, and Neuroinflammation. The risk of developing MS is influenced by genetic and environmental factors. A meta-analysis with twins revealed that environmental factors can influence 21% of the risk for MS, with the major factor being infection with the Epstein-Barr virus. Moreover, heritable genetic traits influence the production of antibodies against antigens of EBV. One such antibody type, called IgG, is directed against the EBV nuclear antigen 1, or EBNA1. In the new study, researchers Erasmus University Medical Center in the Netherlands measured IgG levels against EBNA1 blood samples of MS patients, their healthy siblings, and biologically unrelated healthy spouses who served as controls. The team also quantified the antibody levels against the varicella zoster virus as an additional control. Varicella zoster virus is a herpes virus not associated with the development of MS. In total, researchers analyzed 301 patients with MS, their 198 unaffected siblings, and 174 unrelated healthy spouses. Among MS patients, the majority were diagnosed with relapsing remitting MS, followed by secondary progressive MS, primary progressive MS, and finally, clinically isolated syndrome. Results showed that MS patients had higher levels of EBNA1, IgG, compared to their spouses and siblings. No differences were seen in IgG levels against varicella zoster virus across the three groups. Since patients with MS were significantly younger than their siblings and spouses, the researchers assessed whether age influenced the results, and they found higher levels of EBNA1 in younger patients and lower levels in older patients. When stratifying MS patients by age, patients younger than 50 years and patients 50 or older, researchers saw that young MS patients had higher EBNA1 titers. 
young MS patients were 2.7 times more likely to have high EBNA1 titers compared with their siblings. Patients older than 50 also had an increased risk for EBNA1 titers compared with their spouses and older siblings. No link was found between EBNA1 levels and gender, clinical disease course, or disease duration. Also, no changes were seen across the different age groups for varicella zoster virus antibody titers. The HLA-DRB1 gene provides instructions for making a protein with a critical role in immune system activation. Previous research has shown that variants of this gene can influence the risk of MS in adults, with the HLA-DRB1 variant increasing nearly three times this risk. The researchers therefore analyzed the HLA-DRB1 variant and saw that it was more frequent in MS patients and their siblings when compared with spouses. The genetic variant was associated with a 4.2 times higher risk of MS and also with elevated EBNA1 levels in patients and their siblings. The varicella zoster virus antibody titers showed no association with HLA-DRB1 variant. The risk for EBNA1 levels was higher in younger MS patients compared to their spouses independently of the HLA-DRB1 variant, while in older patients, high EBNA1 levels were seen in patients positive for the HLA-DRB1 variant. Another genetic variant named HLA-A2 showed no association with MS or EBNA1 titers, even when accounting for age. Based on the results, the team suggested that an MS diagnosis is an independent risk factor for high EBNA1 titers, regardless of whether the patient had an HLA-DRB1 variant. Nonetheless, young relatives of MS patients had an in increased risk for elevated EBNA1 titer, which highlighted how heritable genetic factors may influence the immune system's response against EBV. In summary, our study shows that EBNA1 titers were highest in patients with MS, intermediate in siblings, and low in spouses, which suggests a strong genetic contribution on the EBNA1 response that is partially associated with HLA-TRB1, the researchers wrote. Further genetic studies are required to assess how genetics impact the level of EBNA1 response in MS, the team noted. Coming up next, Perspectives, from MS News Today columnist Jesse Ace. You always do what you can to keep your relapsing multiple sclerosis in check. But if your relapsing MS is starting to change, it can affect your mind and body in new and different ways. So it's important to choose a treatment that goes beyond relapses, one that can help you stay ahead of disability progression. Take charge of your relapsing multiple sclerosis. Learn more at changesinrms.com. Hey everyone, my name is Jessie Ace and I'm one of the columnists for MS News Today. I'll be reading one of my articles from my Disabled to Enabled series. Dispelling five common myths about MS. I'll have to use a wheelchair. 
That was my first thought when I received a multiple sclerosis diagnosis. After I got my ticket to the weirdest whirlwind weekend that I'd ever expected to attend, three days in hospital, the myths that I'd unconsciously collected throughout my life to that point manifested in my mind. However, I've come to learn that the idea of going straight into a wheelchair after diagnosis is just one of the many misconceptions surrounding MS. In this column, I'll address five of the most prevalent myths about MS. 1. MS is the same for everyone. No, it's not. MS is sometimes called the snowflake disease because each case is unique. I didn't know this when I was first diagnosed and I believed like it was like having a cold. You know, which where you have the same symptoms as everyone else with a cold. Runny nose, sore throat, sneezing and so on. With MS, different parts of your body are affected depending on the location of the lesions in your brain. It took me a long time to learn this. Fellow columnist Stephanie Towler expressed it perfectly in her column MS Understood Millennial when she wrote that MS is not a one-size-fits-all kind of disease. 2. You can't have children. MS does not affect your fertility. Many women find that symptoms remain stable or even ease during pregnancy. I haven't yet had a baby myself so I can't possibly comment on what it's like to go through pregnancy, childbirth and beyond with MS. However, I have spoken to several women on my podcast about their experiences. 3. You'll be in a wheelchair. As I mentioned, I had this thought in the hospital when the doctor first told me that I had MS. I wondered what contributes to this belief. A possible reason is that when you type in person with multiple sclerosis into an online search engine, images of people in wheelchairs do come up. Another reason is that many MS symptoms are invisible to others, so you may not know that someone has MS unless you ask them. A wheelchair is the most obvious way to demonstrate that a person has an illness or disability. Which is probably why it's frequently used to portray a person with MS. 4. You shouldn't exercise. Again, this is untrue. I learnt recently that it, is used to, it used to be standard practice for doctors to advise against physical exertion in people with MS in case of relapses. However, this advice is outdated. The latest guidance suggests that exercise is good for someone with MS as it provides overall benefits for health and well-being. I spoke on my podcast to MS expert Dr. Gretchen Hawley about exercise. And this article on the National Multiple Sclerosis Society website also gives a good overview of exercising with MS. 5. MS is contagious. No, it's really not. It's a disease that affects your brain and spinal cord in which the body attacks the protective coating around the nerve cells and breaks it down. You can't catch that. Many people still have this misconception though. And this can be quite a useful card to pull out to break the ice with someone that you don't really know. You know MS isn't contagious, right? Using humour is often a great way to put someone at ease. After I received my diagnosis, I was shocked when someone I knew stopped talking to me. Maybe they thought I was contagious, I don't know, or perhaps they didn't know what to say to me. Either way, I decided that if they weren't willing to help me through a really hard time, then they weren't real friends anyway. I've since read Judy Lynn's amazing column, Friendships and MS, which really resonated with me. The information in our flash briefings and podcasts are provided for informational and educational purposes only. Be sure to tune in daily to Multiple Sclerosis News today for the latest news and perspectives regarding the disease. Discover more content that might be of interest to you at www.multiplesclerosisnewstoday.com. And be sure to follow us on social media and join our Multiple Sclerosis News Today forums 
a trusted MS community ready to welcome you anytime.